Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey, this is Laura Stark. I'm an associate professor at Vanderbilt University. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Professor Raina Hogarth, who is the author of Medicalizing Blackness, Making Racial Difference in the Atlantic World. This interview is a collaborative effort among myself and students at Vanderbilt University in the course American Medicine and the World. We'd love to hear any feedback you might have. And I'm also happy to share ideas and strategies with teachers if you'd like to do new books interviews in your own classes. Feel free to send me an email. Well, Professor Hogarth, thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. Um, this is Laura Stark, professor at Vanderbilt University, and the students, the learners, including myself, uh, of your book, Medicalizing Blackness. Um, and we're coming from the course called Medicine, Health, and Society, I'm sorry, uh, called um, American Medicine in the World in the Department of Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt. Um, and we really enjoyed reading this book together. And I want to just um, first ask you about the key term that's sort of uh, at the kernel of the title itself, and that's the term medicalization. Could you talk about what this process refers to and what, it, what you're getting at with referring to medicalizing Blackness? Okay. Um, so an excellent question. Um, I, I guess it, uh, the term comes out of um, a number of things. I found that when I was um, an undergrad and graduate student reading about issues related to race and health, um, particularly thinking about race and health in the era of slavery in the Americas, there seemed to be these kind of disparate references all over the place about you know, what Black people could get, what diseases they could get, tolerances for pain. Um, and in my mind, I thought, okay, there must be a way to kind of organize what I was seeing in the historical record and in the primary um, sources. And then I thought about the ways in which the term medicalization kind of has been applied more broadly. Um, so the idea of treating concerns or problems in a society as a condition that could be like sort of treated or understood in a clinical sense. Um, and so kind of combining these two sort of different like uh, thought processes saying, okay, it seems to me that physicians are trying to make legible 
what they are observing about Black people's bodies. They're clearly doing this in a clinical way. They're observing bodies. They're thinking about cure of treatment. Um, ultimately, part of their practice is, is of medicine, as is, is practitioners of medicine. But I also recognize that there was something at play. This is a process of creating new knowledge, of applying it, of circulating it, of sharing it. Um, and so very much so, I, I realized that when you make a comparison about one person, one race of people getting a fever and another not, this is a process of sort of creating um, medical value and clinical value to that. And so I realized, again, focusing on the Americas, focusing on um, the Atlantic world where we have a very clearly racialized system of slavery, um, what I started to see unfolding after thinking about all of these um, sources was that these physicians are medicalizing blackness. They are looking at blackness as a trait. It has meaning. They're using it as a marker of difference that had not just a social value, but clearly a clinical value. So that's sort of where I, how I got to this idea of medicalizing blackness. Super. Um, and as you mentioned, the, the book is really getting at white medical authority. And I, I, we feel like really effectively showing the instability of it and actually the ongoing instability of it with uh, different forms of skepticism in the book, for example, from the plantation owners and also the um, competitors, including the black healers that you talk about as well um, in the second part of the book. And so it's a it's a book about the instability and the establishment of white uh, medical authority in the late night. Uh, late 18th century and early 19th century, the period that you're looking at. Um, and one of the key interventions of the book is that the medicalization of blackness was not, as a lot of the historiography might um, lead us to believe, primarily or originally a project of um, justifying and upholding slavery. Rather, you're looking at a period in which um, Slavery was uh, well-established at the time. Um, it was only partway through that you have the ban on the um, international uh, trade of slaves, but even then not the abolition of slavery itself. And so you show that the production of uh, race difference and a, a black white binary is actually serving the purpose of trying to professionalize this kind of fledgling white medical community. So you, could you talk a bit about the status of the white medical profession between uh, the period in the period you're looking at? So the late 18th century and early 19th? Sure, my pleasure. And thank you so much for very like concisely and tightly summarizing that main intervention because it truly was something I wanted to make sure was uh, clearly gotten across to the readership. Um, but I should say, um, and especially just sort of thinking about this, discussing this to anyone, maybe not a historian or a historian of medicine, physicians, to be a doctor in the, the late 18th um, century and into the 19th century, was not something you necessarily wanted to brag about. So when people say, okay, I'm gonna be a doctor, there's like this great respect. That is actually not the case in the time period that I am um, studying and that I'm researching. People are aspiring. Oh, they'd like the profession to be recognized in this way. But the reality was, um, you know, if you don't have medical schools and formalized training, especially in the Americas, anybody can say that they're a physician. They can apprentice themselves to someone who has been in the healing arts, um, there are a few that do uh, elite physicians that may be trained in Europe, they may be trained at the University of Edinburgh, 
and they arrive and they sort of see an opportunity to say, we should distinguish ourselves from all these other people. But how do we do that? Because there isn't sort of a regulatory apparatus and a very clear and distinct way in which you can say, you are a true physician and you are, are not a true physician. So what I'm trying to say is that you have a very crowded medical marketplace. There are a lot of people who can profess knowledge about healing. And so, you know, clearly captive Africans brought with them their own healing uh, approaches to healing and well-being. And they most certainly use that on the plantation. Um, I should say that, you know, plant, plantation owners, um, slave owners and slavers were very um, cheap. And so they would actually, if they could, simply, you know, instruct or have an older, uh, more mature slave on the plantation handle minor issues. So cuts, scrapes, minor things. Anything bigger than that, an epidemic disease, something that requires um, operation surgery, then they're gonna call for a physician. Um, the issue is though, is that even plantation owners would say, oh, these physicians, do they really know what they're doing? I, I feel like this is a waste of my money. And for physicians fully aware of this, their concern is how do I make it clear that I am competent, that I'm the person that's going to get results. And I should say that in this time period, um, this is a very um, economically driven approach, right? If the idea is that you want your enslaved laborers to get back to working. Um, the idea of well-being or saying, I, I wanna help people is not, not really um, the driving force at this time. So the reality is, is that physicians would like to make money. They would like to get some kind of recognition. Um, they would like to show their expertise and so in this way, rather than saying, okay, this was all about advancing slavery, the reality is, is in you know, the 1780s, I, I don't know that anyone in South Carolina, in Charleston um, or in Jamaica was saying, oh, well, we have to worry about slavery ending. Um, I tried to write against an inevitability um, narrative. You know, when people say, well, we know that slavery is going to end. Nobody knows that really in like 1787 or 1788, um, you know, in the United States, nobody knows that there's going to be a civil war. That's kind of, like, that is not information that my historical actors have. So that's also kind of what helped me to sort of think about what if we were to focus on the lived experience, the day-to-day -day interaction, the doctor-patient relationship, and particularly about physicians who are very desperate to get a sense of standing and respect for their professions at this time period. Yeah, really, um, really effective and really, um, really interesting as well. And one of the things that it seemed um, to do also was uh, because the the main effort of uh, the white medical aspiring physicians at the time, um, it, it one of the efforts was in fact to um, solidify their own authority. It produced this kind of thought collective. I mean, thinking about the, the Ludwig Fleck idea of a thought collective. Um, and you write about that, especially in chapter two, when you're looking at um, instances in which you would seem to have counter evidence of what the white um, doctors, uh, physicians were finding. Um, when you ha would have black and white bodies being susceptible to the same diseases or having very similar experiences. Um, that it, this um, idea of an innate race difference was really being reproduced despite the counter evidence. So um, I wonder if you could give us just a few of the key dates that came up during this period for you, because as you're mentioning, um, we have to 
bear in mind the actor's own uh, knowledge and, and assumptions, um, not knowing that uh, the end of the institution of slavery would eventually come quite a bit in the, in the future. So you're looking specifically at the Atlantic world and focusing on the Caribbean and the cases that you pick up um, are specifically in uh, Jamaica, so a British colony and then you do a lot of work showing the networks across the Atlantic world with, with the Caribbean, and in particular with looking at South Carolina and Charleston in particular. And so we really appreciated how you're showing in this Atlantic world context, both the networks and then later on in, in the book, you're using um, these locations for points of comparison as the laws and policies change in the US and Britain. So could you tell us just a few of the really key dates um, in this period of 1780 to 1840? Sure, um, so one thing that I really wanted to um, kind of focus on in terms particularly the 1780s, there's uh, several things going on at this time. Um, one, I should say that um, we find there's like the slow critique, critique excuse me, of the slave trade of, of saying, okay, are we working slaves to death, which they are in places like the um, British Caribbean. And you start to see these acts for how do we preserve the life of slaves or how do we manage them? And you start to see things like, um, so 1788, I think is the year of the Dolben Act where a surgeon must be on all slaving, slave trading vessels. Um, you start to see in Jamaica, the new consolidated act, which is sort of like a code noir saying, okay, we need to have physicians accessible and available on plantations. Again, this is not really a humanitarian concern. Um, I should say prices for slaves increase in the mid to late um, 18th century. And so the idea is to preserve the, the health of those that are there. So we actually see a concerted effort of having a more presence of physicians, sort of uh, playing more of a role in attending to and managing slave health at this time in the 1780s. I would also argue that there is um, really a proliferation of um, guides and documents for the British to survive in places like um, Jamaica in the 1780s, uh, sort of towards the late um, 18th century, simply because Jamaica is not a settler colony, right? So we can think about what happens there is that most uh, plantations are owned by absentee owners. They actually are back in, in England or, they're, or Scotland. They're not actually in Jamaica. Um, the idea being that Jamaica has too many tropical fevers, it's not a safe place for, for whites to live, that the, they'll succumb to diseases of the climate. So you see all these guides on health, on fevers in this period. You see um, in the United States, or it's soon to be the United States in the 1780s, you start to see one, a very large number of Scottish born or Scottish trained physicians living in Charleston. So, and I should say that Charleston, South Carolina, is a very unique uh, region, considering that it was one of the few, I think it was actually the only colony that had a black majority um, in the colonial era. So that actually makes it very similar to an island like Jamaica, which also has a black majority. Um, and I felt that this was a way to sort of think about, okay, in this time period, what's happening in the 1780s? What's happening in terms of the proliferation of texts relying on medical knowledge, concerns about sustaining and maintaining the slave system, even though this is the beginning of some critique, there nobody's saying it's going away. There is not a single person saying, okay, well, now we're gonna end it. It's basically, how do we improve it? 
it's kind of sometimes couched as amelioration. Um, and so thinking about that, it, it made sense for me to kind of connect these spaces um, and kind of knowing that a lot of the information travels. So that was the other thing, looking at some of the sources that I was even looking at in the 19th century in the United States would make like a reference to Jamaica or Santo Domingo, like some um, Caribbean like colony. And I'm thinking, okay, they're like, these physicians are aware of what's going on and they're even citing older texts. So that even kind of um, gave me even more encouragement to say, okay, I need to connect the space and really think about how ideas travel within this time period, thinking about the changes to slavery, thinking about what was going on in terms of um, the development or sort of um, greater uh, texts by physicians on diseases of the tropics and sort of peak of colonization for the British, um, peak of the slave trade for the British. Um, so it made quite a lot of sense to kind of look at that time period. Um, and I will say also, you know, and, and a lot of folks have asked me about like 1840. Um, I have to say that, um, you know, I think in the United States case, there's a lot of um, really great work on antebellum medicine and um, ideas about race that are emergent around the cusp of the Civil War getting there. And what I wanted to do was trying to create a story where we weren't necessarily getting to that part yet. Like I wanted to still avoid that inevitability discussion and, and, and the Civil War and the Civil War, which has been, I think, very well addressed in the historiography. So that just to, to throw that out there with 1840. No, it's great because one of the things that also does um, that your book um, really opens up overall is being able to step away from an, uh, an exclusive focus on slavery to think about different institutions and different reasons and resources for creating this ultimately very rigid racial binary. And the, the point that the Atlantic world was really central to the production of this medical knowledge we took to be another major intervention of the book, um, sort of you're undermining a world systems approach in which it's the metropole and the periphery and the periphery really is, has nothing much going on. But the book is showing that the, the work being done in the Caribbean was taken very seriously and also simply absorbed in other places with the specialization, for example, in, in slave health. Um, and in chapter two, you show, for example, that the, the fixity of a racial binary was so um, insistent in the white medical community that even when there were anomalies, it was external factors that were attributed to the cause. So things like nutrition and diet, even though there was still an innate race difference. And so to develop a little bit of the ideas you're getting at in part one of the book, when you're looking at um, specifically um, uh, race-based diseases as they were thought of, I'm gonna hand it over to Daisy. Hi, um, it's lovely to meet you, I'm Daisy. Um, are my group's question for you um, is, so throughout your book, you discuss two specific slave diseases, um, yellow fever and cachexia africana. So um, we were curious, what can the history of these diseases show about the creation of racial difference and hierarchy? Wonderful. Thank you for your question, Daisy, and nice to meet you. Um, so I, I should say, you know, in thinking about the, the diseases that I, that I was focusing on, I, I wanna say a little bit about um, the archive um, and sort of uh, why these diseases were so instructive and, and sort of 
a little bit actually unexpected to be completely honest. Um, I did not think I was going to be talking about cachexia africana or dirty eating. Like I have to tell you, when I started the dissertation was like doing this and that was not what I thought I was going to be talking about for like, you know, two chapters of my book. So I'll say a little bit about um, uh, yellow fever. So one, um, when I went off to do research, you know, I had read published treatises on yellow fever. Um, some of these things were digitized. Some of them I could just get, you know, I could pick photocopy and I could take pictures of them and then I looked at them. And I saw that, you know, these were treatises on yellow fever that there would always be this kind of random sentence or two where it's like, oh, but you know, we know that the black people are immune or they don't really suffer. And if for a while, it just, I sort of like collected how many times I saw this reference. And I realized that in thinking about the history of diseases and fevers, the idea of seasoning and the kinds of common frequent diseases, yellow fever was terrifying. That was like sort of one that's like the disease of the climate that everyone feared. Um, I'm sure for those of you who are interested in medicine or virology or tropical medicine, you know that yellow fever is a hemorrhagic fever and it has very intense telltale signs. It was terrifying. So I thought, okay, this terrifying fever, I keep seeing these like references. Oh, but these people don't get it at all. I was very curious about that. And it always seemed to be along racial lines. So I had collected this information from, you know, these published sources. When I started digging into, for example, the work of Benjamin Rush, where I saw the manuscript source, when I saw the letter that he writes to Absalom Jones, um, this is chapter one, where he says, okay, this fever will pass by persons of your color. Again, it is very clearly being racialized this is from Benjamin Rush writing to um, Richard Allen, an African, free African-American man in Philadelphia. I thought, okay, right. This is like, piece, it helps to kind of connect the pieces where you can see that there was a sort of just understood knowledge that physicians had about who's susceptible and it fell along racial lines. And tracing that back to John Lining and tracing that back to all of these other figures allowed me to see how attention to a disease, how in disease treatises, I was able to sort of um, bring into sharp relief a bigger discussion about innate racial difference. So that was very exciting. Um, I think also to the point of the archives, um, William Ferguson from chapter two and looking at the cases where okay, we assume that black people are not gonna get yellow fever. It's all over these medical treatises. The British military is making strategic decisions based on this. And here's a medical inspector who says, well, you know what? I think we have a problem. And these are in his manuscript sources. And then to see them sort of scramble and say, okay, well, they weren't fed very well. Well, this is what happens if you don't treat people of this constitution in the right way. They can get susceptible to all sorts of diseases. And so I thought, again, it was a wonderful way to look at what was in the published literature and then what was out there in these manuscript sources and really seeing how an idea of innate racial difference sort of um, came to life and became part of their lived experiences. Cachexia africana, I have to tell you, this was a slave disease that I, I, I came across it in a treatise on you know, health of diseases of um, enslaved populations. And I was just fascinated because it was not a disease that I had heard of a lot about before. I had heard of drapetomania, which is Samuel Cartwright's disease that causes slaves to run away, which is very politicized and had been discussed frequently, but nobody really talked about cachexia africana or dirt eating. And so again, I found that in looking at treatises and looking at sort of these references, whether it be in sort of um, plantation registers that say this person like decreases, right? Cause of death, dropsy or worms related to dirt eating, seeing treatises about this, medical dissertations about it. I realized that this was a racial pathology. It's kind of like that moment where you start to read and piece together all of the descriptions and what these medical students, physicians, people who are writing in journal articles have to say about what causes it, even when they're confused about what causes it, they all seem to say, well, this is a particularity of an 
population. Um, so yeah, I think that in looking at the sources um, and sort of really just, it started with just getting my, my, my hands dirty in the archives, like reading and reading, um, it told me quite a bit about how one can see the creation of racial difference by sort of the questions you might ask of specific um, medical literature on a disease, who's talking about it and how, and of course, paying attention to the context. Um, so thanks very much for your question, Daisy. Thank you so much. And what you show also is that um, through looking at these diseases is that a person's capacity, their skill, et cetera, were not used to understand uh, what they might be able to do in a life, but it, it was instead the continuing assumed innate differences. And one of the things that we really appreciated again was how you were doing a lot of this exploration outside of the more familiar terrain of the institution of slavery. So when you're talking about um, those diseases in particular, you're looking at the military and the idea of um, black people being used in the military, which shows the ways in which British empire um, was uh, enrolling ideas of racial difference, both to be of service, but also not the same status um, as white empire. And so thinking about this really amazing work that you do with a lot of different genres, I'm going to hand it over to Alejandro. Hey there, Professor Hogarth, thank you so much for joining us. Um, sure. My question for you is, in a number of chapters, you talk about the place of medical texts um, in establishing white medical authority. Could you talk about how you use advertisements, slave registries, textbooks, um, plantation guides, and what you call uh, textual subjugation um, sort of in this establishment of the white medical uh, authority? Awesome. Um, thank you for your question, Alejandro. Um, so I have to say that, um, yeah, in the process of writing and researching, you know, you, you realize you've read about, you know, 50 odd treatises on race and you see how physicians are kind of talking to themselves and kind of patting themselves on the back for this new information. They're citing each other. And all of this, of course, is coming off of data that is extracted from a captive group of people who do not want to be in the circumstances that they're in, who are not really benefiting from this data in the same way, because I should say that heroic interventions, white medicine is not always seen as a blessing. In fact, it's often seen as invasive and painful and not necessarily the approach that enslaved people would use. So I started to think really long and hard about what it meant to have the bodies of enslaved black people discussed very casually and sort of allowing people to build a reputation off of their supposed expertise of these bodies, while also ensuring that those people, those patients, those bodies would be kind of silenced in a way, um, deliberately so, um, even though that they were depend, like the physicians were depending on these bodies to have this information and to advance their careers. And to me, I saw this as that kind of sense of sort of a very oppressive, um, a clear sort of power asymmetry that exists in the historical record. And so to kind of attend to that, I thought of this idea of like, you know, sort of a textual subjugation that the, the sort of these bodies are, here they are in the text that are sort of being held as these subjects, as objects, things that the physician uses, relies on to gain knowledge, but themselves have no, don't really get to participate as equal 
partners in that knowledge. And if you do, if they do, you have to read between the lines and see physicians dismissing them as not knowing what they're doing. So for me, I really saw this as, um, you know, just a, a, a massive amount of, of work, of literature that was taken seriously by very elite physicians that, I mean, especially in the Southern United States, you know, to have your medical dissertation be on Cachexia Africana, right? To say, okay, I'm gonna graduate from medical school and I have chosen to dedicate my dissertation to the study of the slave disease. And I'm gonna show my professors that I have mastery over this unusual and strange body. And I'm going to use this to make a career. This is again, during this time of slavery, when we know that enslaved people, they can't go to medical school. They can't, they're basically silenced in these kinds of um, sources. So for me, I felt that there had to be a way to address that and attend to it in the text. So I was kind of thinking of that through this notion of exclusification and, and basically thinking about these um, power asymmetries that we find when we look at these texts. So thanks so much for your question. One of the things that you emphasize is how the knowledge about black bodies that white um, medical professionals were using both to shore up the authority while they were in the Caribbean settings, and also that it was the reference to the Caribbean-based um, knowledge that for Southern white physicians, um, citation to that knowledge was also really powerful. And so it was the, the Southern white doctors who are also using this to establish their authority, building on the tradition of holding basically anything having to do with Britain in high esteem. So the idea that this information was coming from the authority of um, British forms of knowledge with many people being trained in Edinburgh, Scotland, um, for example. Um, and so we wanted to hear a bit about the impacts on um, a variety of groups um, of these efforts to shore up professional authority by white white physicians. And so here I'm going to hand it over to Alina. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much again, Dr. Hogarth, for being with us today. I know we all really appreciate it. So throughout your book, you show how the medicalization of Blackness normalized the discourse around race being a biological reality. That's a quote from page 189. So I really want to know, how did you see the effects of the medicalization of Blackness impact other racially minoritized groups during this period? For example, Native American people and other communities like you briefly touch on in your book. Um, wow, so thank you for this question. I appreciate it very much, um, Alina. Uh, so here's what I will say. Um, you know, in Jamaica, it's a bit tricky because um, many of the indigenous populations, by the time the British have arrived, so I should say the Spanish first conquered this island, um, most indigenous populations, um, their numbers had dwindled quite a bit. And I think by the time the British seized the island, there are not many um, indigenous communities at all. Um, but there is most certainly an attention to differences in bodies and indigenous bodies were often seen as, as weaker or effeminate in comparison to white bodies. So there is certainly a way in which distinctive racial categories or groups um, are existing or coming into emergence as a biological reality. And I think especially um, he says where, um, you know, um, I guess European and English settlers would come into mainland North America, for example, and complain that indigenous people were dying of smallpox and other diseases. And they would see this as a failure of those weakened bodies to thrive. 
right? There's something wrong with those people's bodies. Clearly they are not able to be suited to this, their own land, which is really a sign of true weakness because the idea is that climate and environment are sort of what shape you, you're supposed to become acclimatized. So there is certainly a discourse about um, which bodies are sturdy and which ones are not. And they most certainly fall along racialized lines. We see this a little bit um, in discussions of smallpox inoculation um, in a kind of strange way. If we actually go back, um, I don't reference it uh, particularly specifically, but there is a case of in Boston, I guess, um, in the 1720s when thinking about smallpox inoculation, one of the things that um, a physician who's for the, the, the practice of inoculation says is that this works on all bodies, African, white, and even Native American bodies. And that kind of gives you the sense that it's like, whoa, this truly must be miraculous if it can work on such disparate bodies. And this is quite early. So we're already seeing an idea of racialization um, sort of um, biological racing, like onto people being mapped onto people's bodies in the early part of the 18th century. So most certainly um, Native American bodies are subject to this kind of a, a discourse of generally of being assumed to be less robust. Um, and I think if we move for ahead, um, so out of my time period, but into the 19th century and 20th century, we most certainly see this come into play in discussions about um, Asian bodies or um, Latino bodies. So Mexican bodies in particular with diseases like typhus being particularly prone or um, bubonic plague, for example, in San Francisco in the late um, 19th century, early 20th century is assumed to be uh, Asian people are supposed to be very susceptible. This is highly racialized. So this is a, I should say, medicalizing blackness is just one small snippet of this in an early period, but there is so much um, in the history and historiography about how um, this, this use of, um, medicalizing or like racializing diseases and, and, and sort of creating these discourses about other races absolutely exists. Thank you so much for your answer. And in part part three of the book, you're specifically looking at um, the context of hospitals and getting into what is happening both in the, the slave hospitals that are separate from the plantation hospitals, but also these changes that are coming through with um, medical teaching hospitals as well. And so in part three, you're doing this really interesting um, comparison this time instead of sort of networking between um, uh, Jamaica and South Carolina, but instead looking, using them almost as comparison cases. And here to think about um, these contexts, I'm going to hand it over to Keegan. Hi, thank you so much again for joining us. Um, so our question is, um, a big focus of your book narrows in on the use of black bodies by white physicians for medical training in the antebellum, antebellum South. What other factors, in addition to the availability of black bodies, led to differences in medical training during this time period between the antebellum South and the Caribbean? Great question. Thank you so much, Keegan. Um, so I would say uh, there's a couple of things that I wanted to really bring to the fore um, in sort of the third part. Um, and that is to say that the Caribbean and um, the Southern antebellum United States are, are really quite different when we think about um, how medical institutions function and work and their reliance on black people's bodies. Um, so first and foremost, um, Jamaica, though there were quite a few um, you know, Scottish and English trained physicians that were on the island, Jamaica is very late in establishing a medical school. Um, so that's like not until like the 1830s and, and, and that's, or, and they have a medical journal and that only lasts for like a couple of years. 
in terms of having an infrastructure, like a formalized institution and institutional spaces where you could train physicians, Jamaica is behind the United States in that regard, um, which I think is very um, critical to thinking about the, the sort of different trajectories of these two regions back to medical education. Um, once the university or once South Carolina establishes the Medical College of South Carolina in 1824, that sort of transforms the landscape because it creates a space for Southern physicians to go and study um, medicine instead of having to go to the North, instead of having to go to Europe. And many of um, Southern medical students did go to the North and did go to Europe. So what these medical schools would do then to say, we are just as competitive as schools in urban cities where there are more indigent and poor populations that we can use, or in Europe where they, um, in France, it's very easy to get access to bodies. In the South, they basically say, well, we have the same thing to offer in terms of enslaved people and black populations. It makes it competitive to get your medical training in the South. And they are very much pushing this idea that Southern um, you know, men, because those be the people admitted to med school, should get this kind of education where they're from, with a patient population they're gonna see. And so in Jamaica, it's really different. There isn't this development of, or competition about medical education and training. That said, black people's bodies are still uh, sort of um, scrutinized and, and have value in medical institutions in the sense that these spaces can be used to confine them so that they don't cause trouble, right? So it's kind of seeing the ways in which in these two distinctive landscapes, medical institutions, when so in Jamaica, like hospitals, um, the asylum for um, deserted Negroes, how that's being used in a very specific way to advance, I would argue, um, the colonial government's um, aims, but also to think about um, you know, how in the Southern United States, the creation of medical schools is sort of to advance the profession's aims. In both of these cases, though, there's a clear dependence upon Black people's bodies in a way that is very negative for them. Because it's, again, it's not about their well-being. It's not about really offering them safety and trust of the profession or even of the government in the case of Jamaica. It's really about what's going to, what are we going to get from using these bodies, this kind of extractive um, attitude and sort of how do we uh, either confine them, how do we control them, um, either through putting them in these hospitals or how do we control them either by using them for dissection and using them in these ways that of course sends ripples of, of fear throughout enslaved communities that their bodies could be used in these very negative ways. Um, so yeah, I, I did intentionally want to split those two um, and think about how those institutions worked in different ways and how the existence of medical schools and sort of the, the idea of a colonial space um, really influenced um, the use of these institutions and their relationships to Black people's bodies. So. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, and in, in both contexts, they nonetheless shared sort of this uh, drive for profitability. And also, um, as you're pointing out, the restriction of mobility was really key. Um, and in the in chapter five, which is looking at the Caribbean, you show how this the um, slave hospital was coming, was emerging at the same time as the workhouse. And so the ideas of these spaces of basically incarceration, um, or at least uh, race-based oppression and control. And then in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, the same time that the hospitals were emerging, um, saw the city's uh, establishment of its first prison as well. And so these, uh, you suggest, aren't coincident. Um, and returning back to the part one of the book, the ability um, for the white medical profession to establish its authority by using black bodies um, for medical education um, in the US South, 
nonetheless appeared to not create a contradiction for people who saw bodies as fundamentally racially different and yet still productive and useful for medical education, which was just a really um, effective point. So we've, uh, there's so much more to talk about. And um, I just, we're gonna have to wrap it up now with great appreciation. And so um, I was going to ask Sammy to pick up with the question, if you're still here, Sammy, but I know you had other um, commitments to, to dash to. I, I'm still here, hello. Hello, Dr. Hogarth. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, our question for you was uh, primary sources of information for the historical research cited in medicalizing blackness must have been difficult for you to acquire. Uh, and in your book, you mentioned places that you could not find specific research for, like the patient records uh, from within the slave hospitals. Um, was there any other major area about which you were considering writing, but ultimately chose not to because of a lack of evidence? Oh, that's a really great question. Thank you, Sammy. Um, so, you know, I have to say patient records and sometimes um, notes and diaries from physicians, of course, um, things that were not published, I should say. Um, I was really wanting to find more from, for example, James Thompson, who I cite quite a bit, his treatise. Um, I have looked for his papers. So has um, historian Landra Scheibinger. She's also looked for his papers. We cannot find them um, because he claims to have done these experiments of dissecting black and white skin to make some points about differences in skin. He claims that he's you know, studied this intensely and we're like, where are your papers? They don't exist. Um, I think it was also quite fascinating to me and something that I tried to get at in um, the chapter on dirt eating, chapter three was more references to enslaved practices or or even seeing these in, in narratives or a diaries or accounts that could be I could look at to kind of get a greater better sense of what enslaved populations were doing. This is of course hard because most things are done in secret. So they're not they're not going to be recorded in that way. Even for somebody like um for example Thomas Thistlewood who's known for having this diary when he's in Jamaica where he catalogs a, a host of, of things. Um, those kinds of rituals, I don't think he would be have been privy to, like anything around obia or any like. And there are cases of white physicians who claim to know what it is, but it's always sort of through this lens of skepticism. And so it's very hard. You have to kind of read those against the grain. So I would have loved to have had far more sources that could have given me a better sense of what enslaved populations were truly doing. Um, I would have loved to have had more data diaries from the physicians who were working and living in um, Jamaica, what their day-to-day -day, um, catalog would be. So in some cases you can see, um, you know, the military records, there were case reports from surgeons and militaries where they would say, you know, amputation today or patient came in and like a list of these things. I really wanted to see more of those for um, enslaved patients because I had kind of conceived of a way of thinking about the enslaved patient um, that I was not really able to, to I think, it wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to address it in the way that I wanted to, so, yeah. Well, we can't wait to hear what is up next for you then with the next project. Um, thank you so <laughs> much for your time today. We really appreciate your generosity and for this really remarkable um, book, Medicalizing Blackness. Thanks so much, Professor Hogarth. Thank you for inviting me and thank you all for engaging with my work. I really appreciate it and I appreciate the thoughtfulness of your questions. Um, and yeah, I'm, somehow I'm going to get onto the second project at some point, but um, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. <laughs>